Hi folks, Curtis Shelburne here, and welcome to the Focus on Faith with Curtis Shelburne podcast. A good place just to be and breathe and hang out for a while as we share some words about life in Christ. And that's all of it, I think. Life, that is. The good, the bad, the fun, the sad, the deepest joys, the toughest sorrows, all of it. I think we're going to have a good time, and I hope you enjoy this. I hope you tell your friends about it, and I hope you come back. Well, this Focus on Faith with Curtis Shelburne podcast is a very new thing. We are, in fact, and I'm rather amazed by this, right now just up to episode 10 of 10. I'm really glad you're along with us, though, for this little tenth step on a road that I hope takes us on a long and joyful journey. I know it'll be a much better journey because you're here. This episode, episode 10, is called My Love is Like a Red red rose. I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. I did tell you early on as we started this thing that I would tell you a little bit each week about myself. It's good for us to get to know each other. And one of the things that I do, one of the hats that I wear is that of a writer. I've written a lot of stuff over the years, lots of different kinds of things. I am a pastor and a preacher and an editor, and so I get to write a lot and work with words a lot every week and pretty much every day of every week. That's okay with me. Once a week, I write a column, a blog, a little email essay, whatever you want to call it, that shows up in a few newspapers and on my blog for sure. The blog is called, the column is called, Focus on Faith. And hence, we have this Focus on Faith podcast. Been doing that for good grief. Don't make me do the math, but I think at least 25 years now. I'll look later and find out for sure, but I'll tell you what, that's a long time. I've enjoyed it. The only problem with writing that column is that it comes around a whole lot like Sundays, really very regularly, and it's probably a good thing that it does. Some people say they write best under pressure. I seem to write only under pressure. During that time, those many years, one thing that I have written is a book entitled How to Measure a Rainbow. That book is based on St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, I would not want you to think that my rainbow book is anything like a commentary. It really isn't. It's a book of stories. I like to think, if you know Max Licato and if you've read some of Max's stuff, it's a little bit like that. I haven't tried to copy anyone. Who could copy him? Wow, what great stuff he writes. But it's more Lucato-like than it is commentary-like. The book is entitled, again, How to Measure a Rainbow. If you're interested in that, if you're interested in the blog, if you would really like to know more about those things, I'll tell you how to in just a few moments. Well, we had a bit of an interesting thing happen at our house the other night. It's happened before, and I have to admit, as rare as this thing is, it actually happened two nights in a row. I don't know what you do with statistics. I read the other day that there are, I think they've cataloged, 117 diseases that are called rare diseases. But the fact is there are enough of them that any one individual's chance of having a rare disease is pretty darn good. Well, go figure. That's statistics. We had something pretty rare happen in our backyard. And I probably should go back a little bit and try to explain some of this. Years ago, decades ago, my little brother, two years younger, Jim, 
remembers Granddaddy Key, our mother's dad, sitting up pretty much all night long watching his night-blooming Sirius. It had a bud. It had a bloom that was about to just burst forth into full bloom. And he knew that thing blooms once in a blue moon. Actually, no, it blooms much more rarely than once in a blue moon. Look up blue moon. It's kind of interesting. This plant, which Granddaddy called a night-blooming Sirius, and I'm not going to be particular about this. Since Granddaddy called it that, that's what I'm going to call it. It may have all sorts of other variety names and different, uh, well, you know, genus, species, whatever, go on through the the list. It may have many other names, but Granddaddy called it a night-blooming Sirius. I've seen others. I've seen pictures. You can look it up. This one has a particularly beautiful bloom. I've seen some others. I've just never seen one that I thought had as pretty a bloom as this one, no matter what you call it. Years ago, Jim got a cutting of that night-blooming Sirius from our granddaddy Key. He took that thing to his greenhouse and nursed it for a lot of years, and he waited. I don't know how many years he waited, and it finally bloomed. You never know when. You never know why. It's an ugly plant, really. It looks kind of like some kind of succulent, but and, and you can't seem to hurt it. You can't seem to overwater it. You can't seem to underwater it. The long leaves, the fronds, are kind of interesting, but they're not beautiful. In fact, they get a little raggedy looking, and there are a lot of the times some brown there around the edges and whatever. In fact, I got a cutting from Granddaddy's plant that my little brother had. I got a cutting from my little brother's cutting. I got a cutting from my little brother's plant. I'm getting tangled up here. I planted that thing, and you can just shove those fronds in soil and they will start. They're about the easiest thing I've ever seen to start as a plant. And they grow and they grow. And then eventually, maybe, they put forth a little bud. And you'll watch that thing. And if you know what to look for, you begin to see it growing. And you watch it and you watch it. And eventually, that thing will pop. It's amazing. I've never seen anything more beautiful on a plant. Now, Jim had his plant in his greenhouse. He waited and waited. I think he finally got a bloom or two, but on one amazing year, he got 13 blooms, and that's just almost sensory overload, almost more than you can stand. Well, I had long since gotten my cuttings from Jim, and I had taken a cutting off my own plant and created another plant, started another plant. Only God can create a plant. And I'd given some of them to some other folks and whatever. And, and so Granddaddy's plant has really gone a, a good good many ways uh, here geographically, and it's doing well in a lot of places. Unfortunately, one night the power went off at Jim's house during an Amarillo, Texas winter. And lots of plants froze, including his night-blooming Sirius, that most amazing and prolific of night-blooming Sirii, I suppose. And so I had a plant that was very well started, and I was able to give Jim a cutting from his cutting. And he started it, and this year he has had a couple of blooms, and I'm really tickled about that. Kind of a neat deal. Granddaddy's plant. But then a couple of days ago, a few days ago, my wife was out in the backyard. I was out there with her, and and she said, hey, we got blooms. Yes, we had blooms. On the two different plants that I now have sitting outside 
It is perfectly safe to have them outside this time of year. It is hotter than blazes in our country this time of year. But two plants that are sitting out there beside what I call my birdhouse. That's another story. I've got some doves. I've got one pheasant. I used to have some pharaoh quail and some button quail, but it's the birdhouse. Well, they're out there under a big elm tree, actually two big elm trees. They're sitting there in some really ugly black pots, and their leaves are pretty ugly. But they had produced two buds, one on each plant. Now, I'll have to say, those vases, they're not really vases, they're black plastic, they're ugly. They befit the ugly plants. The first time that we had a bloom on one of those plants, well, actually it was a bud, that little bud came on one of the fronds that I would have trimmed off, I promise you, if I'd been trying to trim the thing to make it look better, which has made me somewhat hesitant about trimming off ugly-looking leaves on that plant. You never know where that beautiful thing is going to appear. There's a sermon in that. There's a lesson about life in that, but that's another story. In any case, the first year, I watched that little bud. I watched it grow and grow and grow. And I stayed up kind of late several nights because I didn't want it to bloom unbeknownst to me and pop in anonymity. I wanted to be there to see it. Since I'd never seen one bloom before, I didn't know exactly how it would look before it really popped. Well, the fact is, you don't have to wonder. I didn't need to watch it all those nights, really, because on the night that it's going to burst into full flower, you will know it. You will see it. It will look pregnant as it can be. It will be ready. You'll see beautiful little pieces of white lace almost showing up inside the, the bud. You will see some amazing little curly cues of kind of a, a reddish pinkish hue that are entwining around the thing. You will see it almost visibly opening and then, well, very visibly opening, but you know, almost you can just watch it and it starts opening while you're watching. But that's when you start watching and you watch it and you watch it and you watch it. And in our part of the country, I will tell you that you will start seeing it at about 1030. You'll start seeing pretty much, this is what this is kind of going to look like. It's really going to be beautiful. It's opening up and you'll have a two or three inch gap in the, the center of the thing where it's opened. But by about 1130 central daylight time, by around 1130 p.m., that thing will be fully open and it will be gorgeous. It's the purest, most beautiful white you've ever seen. It's just absolutely beautiful with yellow and, and rosy colors threaded around it with the vibrant green behind it. If you put a little light on it and shoot some pictures, it really brings all the color out completely. It is absolutely beautiful. We had two buds this year on two plants that bloomed on successive nights. Now that's pretty amazing because I literally have waited for years to have one bloom. I don't know how long Granddaddy Key waited to have his bloom, but I'll tell you, it's worth the wait. It's worth staying up late at night to see these things. And you can stay up. It will, it will bloom and, and stay open almost all of the night. How can you possibly leave that thing while it's so beautiful? Eventually you'll have to, but it's a good thing to invite some friends and to have them come over and have a little watch party and have everybody taking pictures and try to 
you know, just experiment with uh, some different light sources, etc. But the thing that I haven't told you about yet, that is one of the most amazing things about the bloom of the night blooming Sirius. And by the way, that's one night. That's all you get from that particular bloom. It is done after one night. By morning, it will start to, it'll be shriveled a bit. By later in the next day, it'll be lying down on a rock or a piece of timber or whatever is close by there, just fully spent and gone. And before long, it'll just shrivel up and wilt away. Nothing left where amazing beauty held sway in that backyard on one particular night. What I still haven't told you about is another amazing thing, though, that happens. You can stick your nose down into that bloom when it's starting to open, and you can get a little foresmell of what's coming. But if you wait, if you wait until it blooms fully, you will smell the most beautiful, the sweetest, most precious smell you may have ever smelled. I've never smelled any perfume that was as glorious as the smell of that night-blooming Sirius when it's fully open. It will fill the backyard. It will almost, coupled with the beauty of that flower, almost overload your senses. Wow, God does some fine work. And how extravagant all of that beauty, all of that aroma. One night, that bloom opens one time, and then it's done. When's it going to happen again? Well, if I knew how to coax it along and help it to happen, I'd probably be tempted to do it. But that's kind of one of the mysteries of this thing, and also one of its most beautiful features. You just don't know. Yeah, I like that. I like that mystery. I like that beauty. I like that amazing joy that God sends. And you just don't know. It catches you by surprise. But it's amazing. It's amazing. Well, at this point in the podcast, I should throw in probably a little bit of an ad. I've told you before, I wouldn't be against having a sponsor. And who knows, maybe one of these days we'll get a fully official sponsor. But right now, I just want to kind of be my own sponsor, and I want to tell you about some things. I mentioned earlier that I'd written a book entitled How to Measure a Rainbow, and yes, indeed I did. I really enjoyed writing that book. It's been fun. It's been something that people have really reacted very favorably to. I'm thankful for that. A while back, I decided that I'd like to have it available also on Kindle, so I did put it in Kindle format. It is available as an ebook in Kindle format. And then a year or so ago, I decided it would be fun to have it done as an audiobook. And I really wanted to read it myself. I've done some audiobooks and enjoyed doing those. Sure wanted to do my own. And so it's also now available on Audible and Amazon and in other places. Read by the author of all things How to Measure a Rainbow by Curtis K. Shelburne. If you search for it, you can probably find it on Amazon. The Audible book, again, on Audible, Amazon, etc., iTunes, and other places. The easiest place to find it, though, is at my website, www.curtisshelburne.com. No space between Curtis and Shelburne, and Shelburne has an E on it. www.curtisshelburne.com 
You'll find How to Measure a Rainbow over there, along with another book with some music that I think you might really enjoy, and a good little bit of other stuff. Most of it is incredibly reasonably priced. Well, it's so incredibly cheap, it'll just almost bring tears to your eyes. But anyway, if you're interested in the book, the hard copy, and if you'd like an autographed version, I would be more than happy to scrawl my signature across it. Might even uh, be more than happy to inscribe it to someone, if you'll just let me know, and I'll mail it to you. I have to charge you a little bit of shipping handling, and I'll try not to devalue the book too much by writing on it, but I'd sure be happy to do that for you if you're interested. If you're interested in the Kindle book, I haven't figured out a way to autograph one, but you probably ought to run over toward Amazon. Good grief, those things are cheap. I really priced it very cheaply on purpose. I don't want the price to keep anyone from having the book that would like it. It's really a good deal. And I must say, the Audible book is also a pretty darn good deal. It was fun to do. It took me forever. I'll never recoup my money and on the time that I spent on that book. But I'm so glad for my grandkids and anybody else who's interested to have How to Measure a Rainbow available now also in audiobook form. So it's there, and all of those things are available, and there's a whole lot more on the website you might enjoy. I'd love for you to check it out at www.curtisshelburn.com. So that's my ad for today. And now, let's focus on faith. Down here in Texas, we tell Aggie jokes. Up around Minnesota, the Norwegians tell Oli and Lena jokes instead. In a News from Lake Wobegon segment a good long time ago now, storyteller Garrison Keeler managed to incorporate a few of those. One caught the attention of the grandfather under my hat. As the story goes, Oli, a grandfather himself, had been babysitting one of the youngest grandkids when Lena returned home. She'd hardly walked in the door when she smelled a tell-tale and decidedly foul odor emanating from the child's diaper. Well, I just told you about the beautiful, beautiful aroma of that night-blooming cereus plant. May I say, this odor was on the other side of the aromatic spectrum. There was certainly no need to debate the two main methods, the visual method, favored by all men and most women, or the finger dipstick method, favored by only the most formidable and frightening of women, and no men ever. Lena's nose was all she needed. What in the world have you been waiting for? she demanded. Why haven't you changed this poor child's diaper? Well, I would have, opined Oli. But it plainly says on the diaper package, up to twenty-five pounds, and we're nowhere near that. Oh, boy. We laugh, but how we read things matters. Whether we're talking about diaper instructions, recipes, poetry, or even scripture. If you read the poetic lines... My love is like a red, red rose. And draw the conclusion that the poet's lady must be ruddy in complexion and of prickly disposition. 
that may well be the case, but it is not at all what the poet intended. Poems should be read as poetry, and in a much more imaginative way than you'd read instructions for assembling your new table saw. To read poetry as technical writing is to come up with some strange conclusions. Reading scripture is no different. We read the Psalms differently than we read Romans, if we care about receiving the word God intended. The way to take Revelation seriously is to be serious enough about it to read it as the kind of symbolic, specifically apocalyptic literature it is, instead of reading it like a news item in our morning paper. Now, I don't want to get off track here, but, you know, if you read it incredibly literally, which is really a pretty good way to read a whole lot of God's Word, just not apocalyptic literature where the tables are turned and you really need to read it symbolically, well, you'll fall easy prey to the latest TV preacher and his book, and I sure would like his book sales numbers, but... A whole lot of them are crazy, especially when it comes to Revelation. So there, I told you, I warned you. Reading Revelation and taking it seriously means learning how to read that kind of literature seriously. It really does. And that's true of all of Scripture. In my own tradition, and I'm sure also in many others, we've often failed to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New, the Old Covenant and the New. Wanting to hear God's Word and follow it is a very good thing. But some of our folks read the New Testament as if God meant it to be for us the same law code recorded in the Old. He did not. Looking for law, we often twisted the New Testament into something it was never intended to be. And fussing over law, we all too often failed to glorify the Savior. We missed something far more important than a beautiful lover one might compare in poetry to a red, red rose. We missed Jesus and his beauty and the power of his cross and resurrection that sets us free from the treadmill of law-based salvation. Ollie's mistaken reading isn't the only one with smelly consequences. When we should be smelling the aroma of grace and Christ-based righteousness, all focused on Him, available through, only through, and wonderfully through faith, the do-it-yourself, focused-on-yourself, law-based sort really smells terrible. Well, again, thank you for joining us on this Focus on Faith with Curtis Shelburne podcast. I'm so glad you chose to join us, and I hope you'll come back and spend some time with us again. If you like it, why don't you tell some friends about it? Sure would appreciate it. Have a great day.